Lord, we just ask you to bless this time as we look at your word, guide and lead us as you show us what you would want us to, to see and learn from this section. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're in Acts chapter 13. We're continuing Paul's message at, at Antioch in Asia Minor, not the Antioch in Syria. Uh, he started by giving them a little bit of history of Judaism, the fact that they... The Jews had killed Jesus, and Pilate had found nothing wrong with them. And we're going to start at verse, uh, continue at verse 29. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are all his witnesses unto his, the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that this promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it was also written in the second psalm, You are my son, this day have I begotten you. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said in, on this wise, I give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he said also again in the psalm, you shall not suffer your anointed one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. So we're going to continue here. Paul has moved from preaching about Jesus's life and execution. And now he's going into the gospel message. And remember, this is going to the synagogue in Antioch. Uh, this is basically what he preached in the synagogues. The, he gave them the history of the Jewish people, the prophecies about Jesus, and, and moved on into this. So he says in verse 29, and, they had, and when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the sepulcher. So we look at this and says, Paul is saying, this was prophesied that Jesus would die, the Messiah would die. And this is hard because this is why the Jews thought that Jesus was a false Messiah. He didn't set up the kingdom that they were expecting. And even the disciples had a hard time with that. If you remember, when Jesus died on the cross, they were in fear. Even though Jesus had told them over and over again, I'm going to die on the cross and then I'm going to rise again from the dead, they had never understood, never, never believed it, because all they knew is we're following the Messiah. The Messiah has come. He's going to throw Roman, the Roman Empire out of, the, out of our lives, and we're going to be the center of, of the world and the government. That is all they understood. That's all they knew about the Messiah, even though Isaiah 53 talked clearly about the Messiah who was going to die. Uh, over and over again, it talked about the Messiah that's going to die, and this is what Paul is Paul is is going to tell them. Uh, it says they took him down from the cross or the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And this is the, the good news. This is the gospel. If Jesus had just died and stayed in the, in the grave, there would be no victory. Uh, death would have won. Satan would have won. But because he rose again, the resurrection of Jesus is the key function of our salvation. Uh, he paid the debt and then came back to life, which is our hope. When we die, we will be resurrected in the future at the, at the resurrection of the bodies, and we will step into the presence of God and have life eternal without ever having a stop. Now, we will have a period where what kind of body we'll have, I don't know. We'll be before God in, in, in our spirit. And when we're in the spirit realm, that is just as good as being in the body. We won't need a body necessarily in the spirit realm because we will have whatever body is real in the spirit realm. All right? And this is, this is hard to imagine, but, you know, we, you know, but whatever we have when we're in that realm where the spirit is, is real, it will seem real to us some form of body that will seem just as real to us as the fleshly body. Only it will be in the spirit realm. And in the spirit realm, we see it as kind of, you know, just hazy and everything in our imagination. 
But it, once, you're, once everything is in the spirit realm, everything in the spirit realm will be just as solid to them as these tables and chairs are to us. Uh, and how they see this, we don't know. The spirit realm, Jesus was able to walk through the, you know, just appear in, in the room with, you know, a locked room uh, with no problem. And yet they were able to touch him when he desired for them to touch him. Right. So what, what's, what body he had in that realm, we don't know. What body we will have, we don't know until the resurrection comes and we return back to this world as his people in our glorified, resurrected bodies. Uh, and it, it'll be an interesting thing to see and see how God makes all this work out. Uh, and we will learn. But Jesus was raised from the dead. And then Paul goes, and he was seen by seen many days of them which came up from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto his people. Now in Corinthians, he tells us that 500 people saw Jesus after his, after his resurrection. And when he was telling them that, he was basically, going, he was basically challenging them. If you don't believe my testimony that he rose from the dead, you don't believe the other's testimonies, go back and interview the people who saw him and those other people that saw him. Now, we can't do that today, but we have to take their you know, admission that 100 people saw, uh, 500 people saw him. That's a lot of people. If you went to court with 500 witnesses on something, you'd have your case won most likely uh, because that's a lot of witnesses. And it would take a long time to interview 500 witnesses. And so we know that Jesus was raised from the dead. And we know beyond that, we know that he was raised from the dead because the Jews bribed the Roman guards to say that they had fallen asleep during their, during their guarding of the body. Now, I don't know what kind of bribe that must have been. It had to be a pretty big bribe to put your life on the line. And they go, we'll take care of your bosses as well. <laughs> uh, but you know, to take care of that many military people who are going to say that you guys fell asleep and, and overlooked the crime is a pretty, it wasn't a cheap bribe. Uh, military guys are not easily bribed in, mo in most cases. And the Romans were no, no exception to that, that rule. And he says his witnesses saw him raised from the dead. And then it says in verse 32, And we declare unto you the good tidings, how that which was promised was made unto our fathers. And we think about what was promised, that the people of, would be blessed through Abraham's seed. All right. Ultimately, the blessing of Abraham and, is that all nations will be blessed by him. And that would be through Jesus Christ. And we see that that is what has happened. Abraham has many, many descendants. He has a nation that's come from him. And that promise was given from Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. And continued on from there, but specifically given to those three. That all nations would be blessed. Those who cursed them would be cursed. Those who blessed them would be blessed. But beyond that was that all nations would be blessed. The Messiah was going to come through his line. David was told that, and this is when he says the sure mercies of David, David was told that he would always have a king on the throne uh, after his, after, from his seed. And we know that between the period of the exile into Babylon until Jesus, there was no king of David in the people because they did not reestablish the kingship when they first came back. And Jesus was the only one that matches up to that need, and he was made king by God. So we see the promise fulfilled. And in uh, verse 33, it says, And God fulfilled the same unto his children, in that he raised up Jesus again, as it is also risen, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. And that's from Psalm 2-7. Uh, and as a quote from Psalm 2-7, and this is why they had a hard time trying to figure out who is the Son of God. Because they really thought it was me talking about David. But David died. You know, David died so he could not be the one that had been begotten of God and would not see corruption, as Paul's going to say here 
in a moment. Uh, and verse 34 says, And in concerning now he raised him from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said in this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. And this is from Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 7. The sure measure of David. David was promised, Your descendants will sit on your throne forever. And this is where they thought when, when Babylon conquered the Israel and Judea, there was a long process of, oh, David's, David's line is over. There's still, still people of, of his line, but there was no king. When Nehemiah, Ezra, and those guys all returned back to the land, they did not set up a, kingdom, a king uh, during that period of time. And so we did not have a king in David's line. We had no king at all. They went into back to more of a theocracy, trying to run things. And even in today's world, they have not opted to put a king in Israel. They have their parliamentary system and the prime minister. So the, they don't use king anymore. They use um, prime minister. They use a prime minister in Israel today. And during Jesus' day, the Sanhedrin ruled, which were 70 elders and lawyers that would rule. So they basically had a parliament parliamentary system in Jesus's day uh, so they've gone back from a king back to back to religious leaders leading them and now they have an, a democratic system of election and when Jesus returns at the end of the seven-year tribulation he will set up his kingdom and be the perfect king the, the king that is going to be well worth having out there because he is a benevolent king uh, the best government is a benevolent mar monarchy, which means you have a king who's in charge of all things, and a benevolent means that they're good. So a good king is the best government that you can have. The only problem is when you have kings, you have bad kings more often than good kings. And bad kings are terrible, because you can't get rid of them at all. They're just a dictator. Uh, and... Then you have what we have in America, our representative democracy, um, which doesn't work good, works good as long as the people are moral and, and applying their morals and their vote. But unfortunately, as time has gone on in America, we have voted less and less for morals and more and more for who's going to give us the most, most stuff. And our system of government is breaking down. And so we have... Ultimately, we're looking forward to the day when Jesus rules, and especially being an eternal ruler. Um, and then in verse 35, Therefore he said unto him in another psalm, and this is Psalm 16, You shall not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. And for David he served his own generation by the will of God, and fell asleep and was laid into, laid into his fathers and saw corruption. So in other words, you're saying it wasn't David. David died was buried, and his body decayed. And so, because a lot of times people were thinking, well, this is David. David is going to be the one. Somehow David is going to be the ruler of this uh, eternal, eternal thing. And it kind of sounds like if you get into the King Arthur legends, there's all these ideas that King Arthur's coming back someday to, to take over, and they had the same idea with David. Somehow David was going to... <laughs> personally rise again and and be the new ruler now as thousands and thousands of years went by they're going well this becomes less and less likely and we look at it that jesus his descendant was going to be his ruler and this is why the genealogies in matthew and in luke are so important to to be able to delineate that jesus was of the lineage of david all the records for the genealogies of all the people before, uh, since that period of time were destroyed when the, when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. Nobody can prove their lineage anymore. And that's a big deal to the Jews, especially as they get ready to build the new temple and they're going to have to find the, the priests that are of Aaron's, Aaron's uh, uh, family and find the Levites. And because they can't just take people's words for it, you know, because people will go, you know, hey, I'm, I'm of the line of David. I'm, 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 a, I'm, I'm a Judah. I'm from the line of David. Or I'm, I'm a Levite. I'm, I'm from the line of... 
you know, uh, those things get taken out of context a long time after a while, and there's no genealogies. All of that stuff is gone. And so this is why the statement that was pulled from the records is so important because it lists the genealogy of Jesus to show that he is a son of David. He can be the, the king who sits on the throne for eternity, for eternity and will be because he didn't die and, or he died and didn't stay dead. So he didn't see corruption, just as it said. And he was res resurrected before his body decayed. And this is a big deal. And why did he have to stay dead for at least three days is because the Jews didn't believe that somebody was totally dead until they'd been dead for three days. Uh, you know, once you were dead for three days, your spirit, they, they, the way they looked at it in their mythologies was that your spirit hovered over your body for three days and there was a chance that you could be resurrected for three days. After that, you, you, dead was dead. <laughs> Uh, which is why when Jesus brought back Lazarus after four days, they're going, there's no way that you can do that. His, his, his spirit has completely left. He's, you know, he, or, as, or as Mary, as Martha said, his body stinks. <laughs> he's, already, he's already decomposing. His spirit has left, left the building and, and can't be called back. And that happened on, after three days and, and their mentality. So Jesus had to be dead and dead as far as they were concerned. You know, he had to have that three-day period so that they could say, nope, he's, he's really dead. Because if he had been resurrected before that, in their mentality, it wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have been dead. I didn't know that. No, I didn't either. Yeah, they have, they, it was a strange thought. I mean, it's, never, it's not scriptural. Yeah. It was just the way they looked at things, that a body could come back to life within three days. Once you hit the three day, the, the, the full three day mark, you were, you were a goner. You weren't, you weren't coming back. Well, you were dead, but, but there was that chance you might come back. You know, a chance you could come back, you know, within that three days. Yeah. Um, so we see here and he says he has not suffered corruption, but he was raised again to show who he was to the Jews. And remember, this, this whole message is to the Jews. Uh, and why I'm going into these different points that, that were brought out to them, because he didn't have to say much more than what he said, because they knew what he was talking about. We have to kind of go into these scriptures and stuff. They knew they were looking for a Messiah. The Messiah. Just as when Herod asked the, the leaders, where, where's the Messiah going to be born? Because the wise men want to know where, where they're going. And they said, Bethlehem. They, they knew. They knew where he was supposed to be born. Herod was not a Jewish, Jewish believer, so he did not know what was going on here. He just says, okay, you leaders of Judaism, tell me where this uh, uh, Messiah is going to be born at uh, so I can tell these guys how to, how to get there. And uh, I'm really surprised that Herod didn't just have him followed and know exactly what house that he was going to, to kill. That was the type of man he was, but he didn't do it. So the prophecies could be fulfilled. Exactly. Yeah. So he didn't didn't act within his normal procedures that that he would have operated as. Uh, but here is Paul saying, this man that was killed was killed because the prophecies said he must die. He's not accusing the the Jews of being bad at this point. He's just saying they did what needed to be done to fulfill the prophecies. And now he's not forgiving. He's not, he's not saying what they did was right. And this is something that's very important. Some people go, well, if God has predestined us and we don't have a whole lot of choice, then no matter what I choose is not my fault. And this is, Paul is basically saying they did what they did. And, they, and he's not saying it's right, but he's also saying they had, it had to be done. Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins. And... There are many things that happen in our life that God says, these are going to happen. It's going to happen. Herod killing all the children in that area because the prophecy said that that's what he was going to do. In, and like I said, it, it's bizarre to me because I would, I would think of him as just saying, okay, follow, you know, sending some spies with the wise men, follow them. I want to know exactly what house they go to just in case they don't come back. 
and then I'll go kill, the, kill that child. But that's not what he did. He, he didn't follow him like it would make sense. He just said, okay, because they didn't come back, we're going to kill all the children. And why? Because it was the prophecy. And the prophecy had to come true. And this is something that is amazing. We look at what's still coming in our day and age. The end days when the church is raptured, when the world gets evil and does what's right in their own eyes, which is where we're coming, and we're not quite fully there yet, but the world is really starting to do what's, what's right in their own eyes. They're calling good evil and evil good. We're having, we are so close to the end days. The rapture is coming soon. We're going to have the seven years of tribulation where the, just what we know in Revelation says about 66% of the population of the world will die. That's after the rapture. Two out of every three people will, be, will die during the, during the tribulation period. That's a lot of people going to die. And this is what the scriptures tell us. When you say a quarter here and a third here and a quarter here and a quarter here and you add it all up, it adds up to about 66% of the population is going to die. <laughs> well, it'll make everything that we're going through right now just look like a, a, a day in the park. You know, it's, uh, but this is what's coming and we look and say, God was making sure that all the previous prophecies have been fulfilled Anything yet to come will definitely be fulfilled. Now, why Satan keeps doing everything he does, knowing that he's going to just play into God's hand, I don't know. He's deceived himself. He thinks somehow he can win. I don't know. Maybe he just has no choice in the matter. He's just gonna, he has to play out his part, and God knows exactly what he's going to do. I don't know. It's, it seems strange to me that Satan fights so hard thinking that he can beat God when he's a created being. But, you know, the same problem, how many, how many times do we fight God ourselves and not do what God tells us to do and what we know God wants to do, thinking that we're going to win somehow? I've done it myself on more than one occasion, even as a Christian. God, I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to do that my way and end up losing. So on one side, I understand that a fallen person can deceive themselves completely. I believe Satan is so fallen that he does, has deceived himself that somehow, some way, he's going to be able to defeat God. And, you know, and I can't, I can't because I've done it, you know, I haven't fought that hard, but somehow I've said, I'm going to have my way. I'm going to do it my way, God, and fought against God, and somehow in the back of my mind thinking that I'm going to win. So... As hard as it is for me to think about Satan being that way, I've also done things similar. Not, as, not to the degree that he's done, but done things similar. So I can understand how he has deceived himself into thinking maybe somehow I'm going to win. You know, I'm going to get that little, I'm going to find the one little crack in his armor and I'm going I'm to be able to get victory. Well, he's an all-powerful, all-knowing God that is, has no uh, chinks in the armor to take advantage of and that's the that's the thing that we have to understand and the more we understand it the better off we are because we can just back off and say God I'm just going to release to you I want to just say that I'm going to turn my life over to you and it is a tough area to be able to come up and just say I give up giving up is so much against our fallen nature our fallen nature is all about us, each one of us individually, which is why society has so much problems because you have, well, we have a couple trillion people all doing what is best for them. It just doesn't work. Because what's best for me may not be what's best for the majority of the people. And I'm not going to care. And we're taught in college to follow Maslow's pyramid of of hierarchy and the ultimate one is where I do what's best for me self-actualization whatever's good for me I do and they try to to sanitize that statement out and say well you know if I'm really doing what's best for me I'm gonna do what's best for society no that's not what he teaches if I automatically do what's best for me I'm living in my selfishness and it doesn't matter what happens to anybody else because people 
and doing right are at the bottom of the pyramid. And it's very funny when you compare his triangle with God's word, it's completely upside down. What's best for me, according to the word of God, should be subjected to what's best for God and his and people. I'm a servant to all people. I'm not being served, which is what I want if I'm self-actualized. And this is the, the thing about it. The world turns God's word upside down and says, whatever God says is good is not what's good, and we're going to do it the opposite way. And this is any time that we read something in God's word and we look at the way the world does things, it'll be exactly the opposite. Jesus said that if you want to be the master, the master you serve all. And what does the world say? If you, you, know, you just make everybody your servant and you'll, and you'll be master. Yeah. Now they won't want to, but it doesn't matter because I'm in charge and I'll make them do whatever I want to do. And Jesus said this, the real master serves. You know, when he talks about loving one another, what does Jesus say? Love your enemies. The world says just love the guys that love you and then you know, those enemies you can, you, can, you can cause as many problems as you want for them because they deserve it. And Jesus says love one another. Love your enemy. He takes love to such a high level that we can't even live it without him. There's no way to love an enemy without God being the one that loves them through us. Because our flesh comes up and says, uh-uh, no way, that person, that person deserves to be uh, punished. That person deserves to have all these bad things happen. Well, of course they do. But it's not us that's supposed to do it. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It is much better for us just to sit back and say, God... I'm just going to love them. You, you do whatever you need to do to them. And it's quite interesting, you know, to watch God work. Over the years, I have watched God work and do things that have almost been mind-blowing when you, when you see God do, do what he does. Uh, you know, people being disciplined in ways that I would never, never have wanted them to be disciplined and just see that when God steps out into the, into the, into the midst of things, and people get their judgment and watch how he does things. If I just step back, most of the time what I've noticed is the more that I try to make sure that something happens, it gets really messed up and usually backfires on me. You know, I'm going to make sure that person gets all the, all the bad that they deserve and I end up getting get caught, up in, I get caught up in the middle of it. You know, I set I set the the bomb for them, and I and I get and I get the and I and I get it. You know, uh, in Psalms it tells us, "He who digs a pit for his enemy will fall into it." Uh, and that's usually what happens. The more we try to make sure that this person is going to get what they deserve, the more it backfires, and the more we suffer. Well, we have to uh, we start we have to start where we start. Yeah. But the biggest thing is for me not to expect them to have to be punished. That's between them and God. And this is something that we have to get to the place of where all right God, as much as I want to see them, you know, be hurt and everything, true love doesn't even want to see that from them. You know, true love is God's love. God is not looking forward to the day that he's going to send everybody to hell. That is not his heart. He's going to be broken. I can almost picture God crying when it's time to, when they stand before him at the white throne judgment. And he's going to look at them and say, I did everything I could for you. I sent my son to die for you. I sent my witnesses to talk to you. And you rejected me over and over and over again. Depart from me. Enter into eternal darkness and, and hell. And I almost picture him having tears in his eyes because of all that he's done to try to win them. He is not going to be rubbing his hands, all right, I got these guys finally. That's not his attitude. And yet we as Christians sometimes have this attitude of just can't wait for, even if we're not trying to do it, just can't wait for God to get, you know, get them. That's still not love. <laughs> you know, our love is expressed to that, I want to see people saved. 
And I don't care what happens if they give, it seems like they get away scot-free with all the sin and, and, and damage, you know, and attacks on me or whatever. Ultimately, I want to see them saved. And that is what I want. Now, I know sometimes that means God has to be very harsh on them. But again, I'm not wanting them to, to be hurt. I'm not wanting them to be in pain. And maybe it's just, maybe I haven't had anybody hurt me that bad or not. I don't, I've had people tell me they have, but I have not felt that way. My goal is they're in God's hands. I just want to see people get saved and, and follow God. Well, they're not going to get, they're never getting away from it because that's, that's Psalm 2 where David says, why do the heathen rage and the, and the heathen imagine vain things? David had the same problem. God, it looks like these bad people are getting away with everything and they're, and they're going to get it. But just remember, the most important thing is God does not close the books until they stand before him at the white throne judgment. They can always come to him at any point. Once they die, it's over. They are going to, it may look like they've got, that they had every, and let's say they had a perfect life, and nobody does. I mean, even, but let's just say they had a great life. They had all the money they wanted and all whatever they wanted, and they had a life that was somewhat enjoyable by our human standards. Deep down, number one, they knew they were empty. Everybody who is lost without God knows that they're empty. How do we know that? Well, we look at all the, the superstars, actors and actresses and singers and athletes that are drunkards, that are addicted to their drugs because they're, looking, they're still looking for something. They have, they have what we would say they have everything. They have money, they have possessions, but they're still empty. So we know that they're not even living. But let's say everything was good and they never felt, they never really felt empty. They enter into eternity not knowing God and they spend the rest of eternity in pain and suffering. 20 trillion years from now, this 100 years on earth is not going to seem like anything. And when, you're, when they're in hell for that long, looking back and still have just that long in the future, and all they look back and say, don't I wish I was back on, the, on that world, if they even remember it. Same thing for us in heaven. We're not going to remember the, you know, not going to re, you know, 20 trillion years from now, we're not going to remember 100 years on, on this world other than the rewards we got for, certain, for letting God work through us. You know, so this is where we have to get an eternal perception on things. We may think somebody's got everything, they've got the world in their hands, and everything's going good, but if they don't know God, this is the best they have. And for us as Christians, let's say for some strange reason, we, got no, we didn't seem to have any blessings. We just got beat up by life over and over and over again. It won't mean anything once we reach heaven. This was Paul's, Paul's statement. I thank God for these light afflictions in comparison to eternity. Paul was able to say, I keep getting beat in all the cities I go in. They keep throwing me into prisons. I get into shipwrecks. I've had all these things happen to me. You know, and we, none of us have had anything like Paul had to happen to him, to us. And he says, these are light. And why did he say they're light? Because when I get to heaven, I've got blessings that are just so far beyond anything that I've had to suffer in this world, and they're eternal. And, you know, and I'm not trying to belittle the problems that we have in this life, but at the same time, when we put it in perspective, I've only got to put up with things for, well, let's say, science gets really good, 200 years. <laughs> You know, I just have to put up with this life for 200 years. And then I have eternity with the blessings and, the, and all that God has given me. And if we can really start thinking in those terms of where we're at, then we're, we fall where Paul says. These are just light. And hopefully none of us ever go, with, go through what Paul went through. But the closer we get to the rapture, the more likely it is that we are going to face some of what Paul went through. It is quite likely as we get close to the rapture and the end times that we may be thrown into prison. We may be beat. We may be attacked. We may be killed for our Christianity. We may have all the troubles that he went through. 
and it's not too far-fetched. And you know, I fully expect that most Christians are going to be thrown into prison before, before the rapture because things are getting so bad. Because we carry the light of Christ into the world, and the world does not like light. And for many people, when they look at us, they look at us as Christians as troublemakers because we won't accept what they do. You know, and for those that have friends that are, that are not Christians, you'll go, and you're going, and you, especially if you used to hang out with them and drink and do drugs or whatever else, and you don't do that anymore, and then you'll hear that, well, you just think you're better than me, don't you? You know, and they'll attack us. You know, you just think you're goody two-shoes. You know, you, you, know, you're, you, know, you think you're, you know, whatever. Take this to the next level where the government now starts agreeing with us, with them, that we are too much trouble to be around others and be put into prisons. This is what happened during the Roman Empire. The light came into the Roman Empire and changed it. We, in our day and age, our world is not being changed by the light. The, the dark is, is starting to win back out again, and we're becoming just like the Roman Empire was when Jesus came. With all the violence and crime and problems that, are, that happened back then are starting to be what's happening today. You know, they talk about going into a post-Christian world. What we're doing is going pre-Christian. We're going back to what it used to be like. And we have just been so spoiled with a Christian world for the last 2,000 years, 1,500 years, that we thought it was normal. And we're finding out it's not normal. What the rest of the world, anything outside of Western, Western civilization, Europe and America, you know, there are still places where slavery reigns, Women have no rights, in spite of all the stuff that's trying to be done by the one, by the by the UN and everything. There's places where women have no rights still. Slavery is rampant. You know, evil evil is so crazy that if somebody gets sick, they're well, just let them die. If they don't get healthy, they didn't deserve to die in the first uh, live in the first place. Just as the things were before Christianity built hospitals and orphanages and and all these things. And we're seeing it all come back again. <laughs> and here's what Paul says, you know, this, this man came to change all of this. Jesus came to make that change. Verse 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that, the, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sin, and by him all that believe are justified from all things which, were, which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that, lest that come upon you which have spoken of the prophets. Behold, you despisers, and wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work in which you shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. All right, so Paul is finishing up his message. These are the last words he goes. He says, Be it known that this man preached unto you forgiveness of sin. Now, this was a different doctrine that had ever been taught. John the Baptist preached repentance of sin. Repent. Before that was the sacrificial system. The only way that you had your sins forgiven was never. During Yom Kippur, they placed the sacrifice that would give you forgiveness of your sins from the previous year. You were in trouble if you had too many sins between between Yom Kippur and Yom Kippur because your sins weren't, weren't covered and they weren't even forgiven, they were just covered by the blood. So this is a whole new idea to them that God loved us enough to forgive our sins. Forgive, make as if never happened. And this is the beauty of this. When God says our sins are forgiven, we don't really understand that how different that is. It was never taught. It was never believed, even in the Old Testament, even though God kind of indicated that it would happen. Their idea was that my sins are covered by the blood, so but not forgiven. Huh? So you never bring them back up. God will never bring up a forgiven sin. He uh, removes them as far as the east. Doesn't matter what the sin is, it's covered. It's under the blood of Christ. 
And this is why I keep saying, when people stand before God at the white throne judgment, there's only one thing that's going to send them to hell, and that's the unforgivable sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. You've rejected Jesus. If you've accepted Jesus, you're forgiven. You've rejected Jesus, then you are, your sin is still not the issue. It is that you're not perfect. And this is where our righteous, the, the people at the white throne's judgment are going to stand in their own righteousness. All the good things that they do, which God says is filthy rags. They will stand before him in filthy rags and saying, I deserve to get into heaven because of all the good that I've done. And then they get to look at the good that they've done that they're clothed in and realize it's nothing but a bunch of stinky, filthy rags and that even the good that they, des that they thought was going to get them into heaven is not good enough to get them into heaven. This is where the Jews are right now because the, the rabbis decided after the temple was destroyed and they could not offer the sacrifices, they decided to teach everybody that you do more good than bad and you're going to go to heaven. And that is how the Jews live right now because they don't have a, they don't have a temple to be able to offer sacrifices. Which is why the Orthodox Jews want a temple so bad because they really understand that there is no covering of the sin without the sacrifice and blood being shed. And they can't just shed blood anywhere. It had to be done at the temple by the priests or so the tabernacle. They didn't believe in Jesus Christ dying for the no. No, they did not believe in a Messiah who died. They're still waiting for Messiah to come. Now it says that during the tribulation period when the Antichrist stands up in the Holy of Holies and declares that I am God, that their eyes will be opened and they will realize that they have been tricked. And then when Jesus returns, according to Zechariah, they will look at him and say, who is it that put these holes into your, these wounds on your body? And he goes, they were the wounds of my friends. Yeah. And they'll recognize who he is and, and, how, and, how, and how he got those wounds. But they, at this moment, they do not recognize Jesus as their Messiah. The Jewish people believe that he was a false Messiah. They still believe that. Because that doesn't fit into their preconceived ideas of what was going to happen. They did not see the suffering Messiah of Isaiah 53. They did not see the, the Messiah that was going to be hung on a tree. They did not see the... The, this, the Messiah that was going to not see corruption because they go, he didn't, well, he's, if he's not seen corruption, he never died, is their attitude. So they have this problem. They do not see Jesus as Messiah. Now, when they do, and their eyes get open, and they go, wow, our scriptures are full of the Messiah who was going to die and pay for our sins and, and be the fulfillment, then all of a sudden it opens up into a great, but I don't want to be too hard on them because there's too many times when we look at the same thing. You know, a church doctrine or something teaches this is the way you're supposed to think. And it doesn't matter what the scriptures say, we, we, start, we can think that way. Uh, and this is where problems happen is. I'm not going to judge them because I've, I've seen it happen too many times. It's even happened to me. Now, eventually the scriptures pound me in the head enough that I'm going, oh, you know what? I wasn't taught right when I was a kid. And it's even worse if you get into certain different uh, religions or cults or anything because now you have all these things that were taught incorrectly that now have to be untaught or un unlearned or un unbelieved and replaced with something else. And this is a really tough thing. You know, people who don't understand forgiveness, don't understand God's love, don't understand, you know, his mercy... Uh, we have groups in Christianity, name it and claim it, that if I just claim something, God's got to give it to me because I, I claimed it in Jesus' name. You know, God, uh, in Jesus' name, I want that viper out there and, you know, and I want to have that really nice car. And I, God, in Jesus' name, I want to have the mansion on the hilltop. And in Jesus' name, I want to have a million dollars in the bank. And God says, uh, that's not what I said. That's not, you know, not, not my truth. But yet there are churches that teach that. And then people get all despondent because God doesn't give them everything that they were supposed to get. And they're going, well, here's all my scriptures. Well, here's all the other scriptures that God says, you know. But we also have to understand what his name is. And it's so important for us to keep in mind 
what God truly says. And be willing when Scripture starts contradicting what we think we know, to start going to the Holy Spirit and saying, God, teach me. Teach me the truth. And this is very important because I don't care whether the Baptists say something or, or the Lutheran or the Presbyterian or whatever other religion, you, you know, denomination you want to go out there with, the Pentecostals. If it doesn't fully match up to Scripture, we have to go to Scripture and say, what does the Bible say? And this is important. Uh, we, we have like the Catholics who see, teach that Mary was a virgin perpetually. It's not what the Bible says, but yet that is taught to people. And we need to understand, you know, sometimes people just don't understand because they don't know the Bible well enough. And we find the same thing. There are things that the Baptists practice and teach that aren't so, aren't so biblical. Now, their doctrines are all strong, but the way they practice them isn't so good sometimes. Most Baptists are are cessationists. That means that the Holy Spirit stopped acting after the first century. Now, I don't know how they come up with that idea. My God says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, so the Holy Spirit still does miracles. He still does, he is still working in people's lives. He's still uh, doing healings. He's still, still using tongues. He's still, still doing great things and, and wonderful things. He did not all of a sudden become irrelevant after the first century. You know, so the idea is, are we really willing to say, what does the Bible say? And go forward in that. Or do we fit and squeeze everything into what, the way we're taught? And I've been through this on several occasions, especially when I was a teenager, and I bounced around all kinds of different denominations as we moved, as we moved all the time and ended up in a new church. And, I had to, and there were times when I'm going, God, I used to be taught this, now I'm being taught this, what is right? Because they don't, they're, they're opposites, and both people are using verses to, to, to uh, make up what, what they're saying is true. And then the Holy Spirit was able to teach. And this is why it's important that we pray before we study. You know, we, we want to go into the Word of God. We, our first and foremost way to learn the Word of God is ask God to illuminate. Show me what it is to, to teach. When I did the class on how to study the Bible, if you remember the very first thing I do, the very first and most important tool for studying the Bible outside of the Bible itself is the Holy Spirit. Pray for illumination. Let the Holy Spirit talk to you. Then you learn to, then you learn to use the other tools which are wonderful and, and, and great to use, but the most important one is for the Holy Spirit to come in. Now, when I did this as a teenager, I asked God for advice. The Holy Spirit told me the right answers. Then when I went to Bible college and learned how to really study my Bible, I found out that the Holy Spirit knew what he was talking about. Amazing thing. The Holy Spirit actually knew what he was talking about, but now I can prove it. It wasn't just, this is what God told me. Now it's like, here, here are my verses. Here, here, are, the, here are the tools. Here are the, here's what these things say. And it was wonderful to now be able to back it up. But the Holy Spirit, if you're listening, will teach you. Just don't get wrapped up in what other people are telling you to do. Which is why I say I want people to, in this church to be good Bereans. Go out and study. Look at the Word of God. You know, I'm, I'm not purposely going to guide anybody in, uh, into, in astray, but you know what? I'm also human. And I may make mistakes, and I may teach something incorrectly. And I'm, I'm at fault. Believe me, I know I'm at fault. And that's one thing about being a teacher that's something that's important is that if a teacher teaches incorrectly, they're double jeopardy because they're not supposed to be teaching incorrectly. But that does not let the listeners off the hook. The listeners were supposed to be getting into the Bible and verifying. And Paul went to the Bereans and said, you are really good because you are taking and checking out everything I say. And we're going, Paul, you wrote, you wrote two-thirds of the New Testament and you're, and you're praising these guys because they went to the Old Testament to prove prove what you're saying and yes any teacher and I've said this over and over if you're listening to any teacher who says believe this just because I, I said it get away from that church as fast as possible because that person is even if they're not wrong then they, they're setting you up to take you down the wrong path at some point because if you're, if you're getting to the place where you just believe them because that teacher says so they may get off 
and, and if that's the attitude and people are just believing them because they, you know, they were so spiritual or so, so knowledgeable that you should just believe them, you're being set up for, for being taken down the wrong path when, at some point. And my goal is always, always, I want people to be looking at the Word of God. Make sure that what I teach is right. Just in case I go crazy one day and, and forget how to teach. I, I hope that doesn't ever happens, but I don't want it. And I've seen it. I've seen it a lot of times with pastors and teachers when they get past a certain age and they shouldn't be teaching anymore. Or I saw it in one case where the guy was a great teacher, but after he had taught everything he knew how to teach, he was starting to do some really strange teachings. You know, he wanted to impress people, so he's starting to do all kinds of crazy things instead of just teaching the Word of God. Uh, so there's all kinds of reasons these things happen. Our job is to get into the God's Word and say, is what I'm being taught accurate? Is it correct? And follow his word because it is what is needed. Paul says Jesus died. Without the shedding of blood, you couldn't, couldn't be in. He goes, and then in verse 39 he says, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which they could not be justified by the law of Moses. Justified. That means to be declared right. All right? Salvation has three parts involved. We've talked about this. The first part when you get saved is God justifies us. From the courts of heaven, he says, this child of mine is perfect. Now, we know we're not perfect. When we make that prayer, we know we're not perfect. But God says we're perfect. And there is nobody, including us, that can get away with saying that we're not perfect because God says we are. Now, the second part of our salvation is the sanctification, and that is where we, God starts making us who, what he said we are. He said we're perfect, and if we were to die at that perfect, at any time after that, we're perfect in God's eyes. Sanctification is when he gets to start making us perfect, and that's when he starts giving us the trials. He gives us all, he keeps turning up the heat a bit to help get rid of all the garbage out of our life. And skims off the garbage and skims off the garbage and skims off the garbage and every time we think we're almost almost there where we're perfect God says we're going to turn the heat up just a little more and apparently I understand when you do gold and silver you keep turning the heat up and more and more garbage gets gets uh, you know moved out of it God is doing that to us <coughs> over our entire life he's saying oh, here's some more we'll get rid of that one Here's some more. We'll get rid of that. Ultimately, we reach glorification. Glorification is that moment when we die or are resurrected or, or are or raptured. And God says, now you are what I said you were. But because of the way God looks at things, remember, God sees things outside of time. So as soon as he says we're perfect, he sees us as we will be. And this is, this is something we can't even begin to comprehend. God knows the beginning from the end at the same moment because he is outside of time, so he is over time. God, we have a timeline that starts with Adam, uh, creation and Adam and Eve and goes through to the destruction of this world and God is outside of time and he sees it all at the same moment. And he can go back and forth in time and do whatever he wants because he is outside of time. And this is what I've shared. He is omnipresent, not only everywhere, but every time. He is with Adam and Eve right now. He's already at the destruction of this world, and he's with us right now. Because of the way he sees things is totally different than we see things. His omnipresence is much deeper than anybody ever comprehends when they first hear the term. He knows everything, and he says, you are perfect, and then he starts seeing us as perfect. Because from his perspective, we are perfect. He knows what's going to happen when we're glorified. And he says, I've declared you perfect. Forget all that time in between. I, I, see, you, I see you at the end. You, know, you got saved when you were 10, and you're now, you're now 60 years old, and it's been 50 years of being perfect. But I, I said you were perfect there, and now I see you as you will be the day you die. And says, you are perfect. 
and he just kind of skips all that in between that we spend <coughs> that we spend all of our time and energy on. We spend all our time and energy on living on this world, and God says, I declared you perfect, and you are. And he just kind of skips over all that, <laughs> all that learning and, and all that training to, to, to be perfect. Not that it's not going to have bad effects. I mean, walking, walking for God is good. It has rewards. It has conse good consequences <coughs> in this world, and it'll have rewards for heaven. But, you know, it's, it is also meaningless, you know, which is what uh, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Everything about this world is vain. It's empty. It, it, is, it is a nothing. All right. And it says, the last two verses, Beware, therefore, lest it come upon you which was spoken in the prophets, which is Habakkuk 1.5, Behold, ye despisers and wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work that you shall no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. In other words, he was saying, Jesus came, and the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin were so blind they would not see him. Even though he kept telling them over and over God's truth, he quoted the scriptures, even the disciples were being blind at that point until the Holy Spirit came in and opened their eyes. This is going to be something that for us, it is so easy to be blind without the Holy Spirit opening even our eyes as Christians. The world is blind. They're captives. They are prisoners. And the one thing that's very interesting is when you get stuck in a particular lifestyle and a way of living, it is easy to think that that's the only way that there is. We do this frequently. God... I've had nothing but these troubles. I'm just so, just no, there's no hope. Nothing's ever going to change. I'm stuck with this. And God says, I'm God. I can make the changes. And we, especially before we're saved, we get locked into that way. You know, our sin is just our sin. And we know it's not, it's not giving us everything we want, but we have those moments of happiness in our sin. And we think, well, if this is the best I'm going to get, I'll take the best I can get. I'll never, I'll never be happy. I'll never have anything better. And we get our, we get our chains on us. We get our uh, blinders on us. And we just act in the way that we've always acted because we don't see how anything can change because we're discounting God or, in the case of the lost world, not knowing him at all. So they, there's just no hope. God came to set us free. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, and Christ came to set the captives free. He is taking the chains off us. He has taken the blinders off of us so that we can walk in victory. Now, that victory may not be what the world thinks victory is. You know, having all the cars and the fancy house and bank account and all that. But, you know, it's so wonderful just to walk with God in control. And that is victory. Knowing that God is in control and I'm hiding in God and the storm is beating on him and not on me. You know, it's quite interesting that when, when you're looking out there and going, wow, that's a pretty good storm, God. God, I am sure glad I'm in you and not, and not out there in the middle of that storm like I used to be. Because that, that's a pretty bad storm out there, God. You're, you're, you're a strong tower. He is our strong tower. The righteous run into him and they are saved, according to Psalm. You know, he is where we go. We run into him and he protects us. And we're able to look out at that storm and say, wow, it is so nice to be at peace. Remember when Jesus was in the boat sleeping and the disciples go to him and go, Master, don't you care? We're, 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 we're dying. Now we may kind of make fun of him and he, you know, he chewed him out too. He goes, you have little faith. You know. But the ones that did this were fishermen. They knew when a boat was going to sink. You know, yes, Jesus said we're going to the other side. You know, they, they should have actually believed what he said, but they looked at the boat. It's full of water. They're sinking. And he's, and he's sleeping and he calls them, you of little faith. There are going to be times in our life when we're looking at it from the human point of view and saying, there is no hope. There is no way I'm going to get out of this. But if we start focusing on God and saying, God, you, 
you are bigger than any of my problems. He may just step up out of the boat and, and rebuke the storm and get rid of the storm. We don't know how he gets, out of, gets us out of them. And I've seen God do some miraculous things in my lifetime to get things out of out. Never the way that I thought that it might happen. God, I need this, I need that. And, you know, God, you know, uh, just hand me, hand me over the, the money to get, get these bills paid and I'll be all okay. And God does all kinds of interesting things to get rid of it. Our job is just to have faith and trust. Now, that doesn't mean we don't do anything. If we need money, we go out and get a job or we do some work. But other times, God will just provide. But we, do, we need to do our part. When I was walking by faith, much of my money came in by God putting jobs in my path. And I had to be willing to take whatever job came my way and do it. And there were other times when I would just go to the mailbox and there would be a check in the mail or somebody would drop by with the money. But if I had not been willing to do the small jobs that God put in my path, I don't believe that the money would have ever been in the, in the envelopes in the mailbox. God would have said, you haven't even done your part. I'm not, I'm not rewarding laziness. You know, God wants us to, to work, but we'll never do all the work. He will always come in and, and finish the process for us. And this is the beauty of it. He loves us so much that he is going to help us in all that we do and get us through everything that comes our way when we focus on him and serve him and trust him and love him and then he loves us more than we could ever imagine that he loves us and says i just want to bless you and he's also smart enough to know that getting everything we want is not a blessing we as human beings want everything we want and you know most of the time what we want is not good for us and God's standing back and going, no, we're not going to do that for you. It wouldn't be good for you to have that. No, we're not going to do that for you. To, it wouldn't be good for you. Oh, this one's good for you. We're going to give you this one. And, you know, if we're good parents, we also recognize that with our kids. Giving our kids everything they want is not good for them. That just makes a spoiled, rotten kid who thinks that they get, you know, they get everything. And there are times when getting something hurts. Uh, you know, I listened, you know, there was an old country song that said, thank God for unanswered prayers. And sometimes, it, you know, you look back in your life and go, God, I am so glad you didn't answer that prayer. Because we look at what, what the consequences of that or what, or that, you know, God, I really wanted to marry that person. Then you watch that person go off the deep end and, and being a total idiot and go, God, oh, thank you for not, thank you for not answering that prayer. God, thank you for not getting me in that business where the, where the company was corrupt and everybody went to, went to prison. I thought that was the right job and you, and you kept me out of it. You know, we don't know, but when we get to heaven and God says, my nose were there for a reason. Now, we are, not, are just like any kid. We don't like to hear no. When God tells us no, we react. Usually as bad as any spoiled, rotten kid does when they're told no. But you know, in the long run, when God tells us no, it is definitely for our benefit, and we need to be able to say, God, thank you for the no's. You know, uh, God, you know, you're going to show me hopefully someday what, why the no's were there. But he has reasons. And we just have to learn to trust that his reasons are good <coughs> and that he had a reason for everything that he wanted, wanted to be done. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you that you love us so much. Lord, help us to always learn to trust you, to consider what you want, and to follow you. There is no salvation and justification without you, and we just thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening, friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me. 
and make him your Lord. If you said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.